day to be together in the house of the Lord. We welcome you in the name of the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. If you have your scriptures, I'm going to invite you back to the Gospel of John. Back to the Gospel of John. John chapter 17. John chapter 17. Our challenge has been over the last number of months to go to God's word, catch a glimpse of his glory, ponder it, think on it, and then beyond that to realize that it's not just about catching glimpses of his glory, it's about doing what his word tells us to do. We don't want to be a people who just look in the mirror of his word and go away unchanged and unmoved. We want it to result in real life change. As Howard Hendricks well says, the Bible was not written to satisfy our curiosity, but to transform our lives. And that's the challenge for us as the people of God who meet week by week together in this place. John chapter 17, beginning to read at verse 20, the third and final part of Christ's high priestly prayer. Verse 20, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me I've given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, these have known that you sent me, and I have declared to them your name and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. This is God's word. Father, we do pray as your children for help. We know keenly again this week the limits of our ability, our strength, our wisdom. And Father, again, we're dwarfed. We feel small in comparison to you. The needs around us are greater. We're in need of more mercy, Lord. Father, I pray that your grace would abound towards us, your people. We pray for a heart for the world. We pray that you would insulate us from insolence and rebellion. We pray, Lord God, that you would work in our hearts even this day. We don't believe it's an accident that we're here in this place. And so, Father, would you come now and help us to hear and see what we need to hear and see. We pray for a heart that loves and cares for and enters into others' grief. We think of the terrible fire in Freehold yesterday. We're thankful for the safety of the family, but they've, they've lost everything. And so we lift them up before you. We pray that as communities knit together, that 
where we might love and care for them, we might be able to do that. We lift before you the the Gordon family, and Father, it was just last week Vern was with us. And so, Father, I pray for your abounding grace to the family and to Vern. I pray that you would be Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. Father, we thank you for the time that you've given to us as as a local assembly. Those that are away, we pray for safety for them and their travels as the as the young men and women boys and girls head back to school we pray for them that they would learn and grow father we do pray as well as we anticipate as a local assembly ministry next week to hundreds of men father we pray that you'd be active in the hearts of those that are coming some unto salvation others unto sanctification but father we pray that you'd begin even now preparing hearts prepare the speaker who will who will come and be with us. And Father, I pray that you might be sharp and bright and holy and useful. Father, I just thank you for the time that you've given to us as a church to meet in this place. Help us to love you. Help us to love one another, we ask. In the strong name of Jesus Christ, amen. I find the study of genealogy fascinating. The history of my family, your family, our heritage, our lineage, to ask the question, where is my family from? How did we come to be rooted here? Just a quick poll, how many of you have some interest in this subject? Put up your hand. Whoa, all right, well, praise the Lord for that. I'll be out in the foyer afterwards if you want to tell me where your family is from. Because our nation is largely made up of immigrants, We are Irish and English and French and Italian and Greek and Polish and Russian and on and on and on we go. My particular family is Dutch or German lowlands. Our family name used to be spelled B-O-G-E, U, two dots over the U-R, but it was changed by, I think, a great-grandfather to make it sound more American, B-O-G-E-R, which is, of course, a very American name feel very confident with. From John 17 this morning, in the quiet, holy ground of Messiah's prayer, brothers and sisters, we catch a glimpse of our roots. We come to understand where we have come from. We are the proverbial turtles on a fence post. We know we didn't get here on our own. And so again, what I want you to do is stop and think about what's being revealed here in John 17. God is praying to God. God the Son is speaking to God the Father. And we've already noted that this is not a model prayer for his followers. It's his actual prayer. After encouraging his men and preparing his men for his soon departure, it tells us in verse 1, he lifts up his eyes heaven. It reminds me again, I hope it reminds you again, that we are earthbound, that we are earthlings, and there is a reality above and beyond us. There's something glorious and transcendent about the infinite and the eternal God. And first, he prays for himself in verses 1 to 5. Secondly, Pastor Jeff handled so well last week, verses 6 to 19, he prays for his disciples. That's the 11 in particular, their unity, protection, and sanctification. 
Thirdly and finally in verses 20 to 26, he prays for the future church, the offspring, those that would come because of the disciples' ministry. It's a little bit of a look at our family tree, not our physical family tree, but our spiritual family tree. It's the children of the children of the children of the children of the children of. And we, here we are in Westerlo, New York, February 23rd, 2020, the product of those that have gone before us and preached and proclaimed the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus prays concerning all believers, those on his mind, on his heart, still in the future. He's broadening the scope of his prayer beyond the disciples to the fruit of the disciples' ministry. We are the offspring of their testimony. He prayed for those who would come to faith. He prayed for us. Which is really interesting because 18 is right in front of us. Now we have the privilege of hindsight. We have the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say. And we know that 18 is kind of embarrassing, horrifically embarrassing for the disciples. They're about to be scattered. The shepherd will be struck and they will be scattered. They will run away from him. They will display not a courage to stand and a courage to speak, but they're going to display the fact that they are yellow-bellied. When things begin to happen in the Garden of Gethsemane, they are scattered. And so it's amazing to think about Christ's prayer in the shadow of their soon failure. Um, these are not exactly the guys that you would think are going to turn the ancient world upside down. You don't really see in the next little portion of John great courage. And yet here's Jesus praying for those that would come after them. Jesus knew that their failure of 18 would not continue. They're on the cusp of terror and turmoil, cowardice and spinelessness, but their scattering would only be temporary. This band of misfits was going at some point to stop running. They were going to stand and speak the thunder of the gospel would bear fruit. Jesus went to the cross knowing that his work would not be for nothing. He wasn't merely hoping the disciples would get their act together. He knew that they would. Well, what does this prayer for the church include? They've broken our passage into two parts. Verses 20 to 23 and then the second part, 24 to 26, the Messiah prays, first of all, that we would be like him. The Messiah prays that we would be like him. Jesus prays for a oneness among all believers. Just like the unity that Pastor Jeff spoke about last week for the original disciples, that we would experience what they had experienced. Here's the truth that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. 
Jesus Christ envisions a great multitude before the throne of every race and tongue and class and social strata. And he prays that they may overcome their different backgrounds and understand their unity that they have at the foot of the cross. He prays that they will overcome the differences. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that even in me looking at you and you looking at me, that we are from different backgrounds. None of us are exactly the same in this building. We have different tastes. We have different ideas, different concepts, different pastimes, different feelings, different experiences, different tasks, things like that. And yet amazingly, we're here together in this room And we know that God was at work in bringing us together to this place on this day. Think about what it is that God does for his people in unifying them. And then imagine for a moment, think about the fact that that heaven and this final glorious consummation and gathering will be all of these different people coming together around the throne and praising the Lamb of God, who is worthy, worthy, worthy. The future will not be orientated merely to Anglo-Saxons, though most of us come from an Anglo-Saxon background. Brothers and sisters, you, you better get used to a dark-skinned believer dancing with their arms up because that's what the future will hold. You better get used to a quiet dour Scotsman because that's what the future will hold or the charisma of a South American or the embrace of Russian or the tears of Malaysians because that's what the future holds there is this universal work of the gospel in bringing people all over the world together at the foot of the cross who but God can bring poor, rich, Asian, Caucasian, African, European into his fold. That they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Keep in mind, this is not some ecumenical facade. This is not a pretended connection. I cannot pretend to be the brother in the Lord with someone who doesn't revere and honor Jesus Christ. I won't do that. It's not a uniformity which seeks to unite wheat wheat and tares in a kind of phony, forced way. It's a genuine unity that's accomplished before the throne of God. And God alone can unite people. God alone can break down the barriers of selfishness and the, the, the barriers that cut us into little clans. It is God alone that can do that. Jesus prays, he envisions the church as one not as different parts not as squabbling people units but as one to meet christians from around the globe and to see them bow the knee to king jesus what great joy that is i remember in ministry in jersey i would occasionally go across town in the town that i was in and and come to some of the special services the African-American church was having. And it was there that I realized a couple of things. I'm a really bad clapper, first of all. I needed lessons. And also how deliciously encouraging it was 
the people not just like me loved intensely Jesus Christ. I remember going to Hackettstown and preaching in the afternoons to a Russian-Ukrainian Baptist church and realizing there was a huge language barrier, there was a huge cultural barrier. Here were these old women covering their head when I stood to preach, and I was like, is it me? <laughs> that was just their culture. And to realize that these are believers serious about the things of God in love with Jesus, fascinated by his work, that he loved them so much and had saved them from their sin. Brothers and sisters, there is something glorious about that. The idea that, that we would be like him, that he would bring us into this fold and only he could do it. We can't get people to get together. But by the grace of God, he can. Christian unity becomes an apologetic. It gives an answer to the deep questions of the human heart. Who can bring us together? The question was asked years ago now by Rodney King, why can't we all just get along? My one-word response to that is because of our sin. So who alone can deal with our sin? Who alone can deal with our brokenness? Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who alone can cleanse us because his mercy is more. The stakes are high. You'll notice that it says, so that the world may believe we may become a reality that is manifest. We display his power. We show his might. If the church can't get along, then the gospel doesn't work. If we're no different than those outside of the church, then why would anyone ever come inside the church? Cranky, thin-skinned, territorial gossip is just as toxic as a weak, rebellious Christian who refuses to obey the master and live differently. It's that simple. There is a spiritual unity that links Christians because we represent Jesus Christ to the world. We make the invisible God visible. We're proof of the power of his resurrection. We're proof of the power of his revelation. Christian unity is an evangelical necessity. It's the vision that breeds atheism in an already doomed and divided world. Years ago, I was sitting around in my brother-in-law's house, and I grabbed a little book. It was a kid's book. I thought I could handle this. So I grabbed this book and I started to read through it and I found it highly profound. It was called The, the Biggest Story. It's written by a favorite author of mine, Kevin DeYoung. And here's the subtitle, How the Snake Crusher Brings Us Back to the Garden. What a great subtitle. How the snake crusher, Jesus, brings us back into the garden. The garden is the place of shalom, wholeness, harmony. That's the gospel. Who's going to save us from us? Who's going to save us from the condemnation that is ours? Because we are not righteous, God alone is righteous. And in verse 22, Jesus prays that the church would be marked by glory. Salt cannot stay in the salt shaker. Tools cannot stay on the shelves. 
The glory which you gave me, I've given them that they may be one just as we are one. Do you sense the repetition here, brothers and sisters? Do you sense the sense that we're hearing it again and again? Same idea over and over. That's one of the things that God does in emphasizing grand truths to us, great truths to us, is that he repeats them. There is to be a shared glory among believers. We enjoy the doxa, the glow of God upon our lives. When we focus on Jesus, when we make much of him, when we find delight in his presence, unity results. When we find delight in our presence or our preferences or our wants or our patterns, disunity results. If we have the glory that the Father gave to the Son, it is the glory of the Son and how did the son live? And how did the son serve? And how did the son love? And how did the son care for, one, for those around him? He suffered for them. He displayed sacrifice to them. He appeared humble before them. He loved them. And so here we have a unity that is founded in love. I in them and you in me, according to verse 23. It's not a false fake compromising it's not a fear or or a coercion it's a unity of love it's the common identity of the lord jesus christ i desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where i am this wonderful consummation of unity this this idea of being kept and sanctified and unified that we would share the same desires, the, the same wants, the same longings, the same affections. We have to ask ourselves in the shadow of a passage like this, do I want what Jesus wants? Do I want what Jesus wants? Because this is, this is what he wants. We ask ourselves, well, what do I want? Well, I know I want money. I know someday I hope to go to Florida. I know I want this and I want that, but do I want what Jesus wants? And to read a passage like this is to come to grips with what it is that he desires and he wants, and he wants us together. He wants us to be like him. The second and final portion of the text, verses 24 to 26, the Messiah prays that we would be with him. The Messiah prays, King Jesus prays, that we would be with him. Remember, he's told his men that he's going away. Did he want to be with them because he's going away? He's leaving them, he's departing. Hey, guys, I'm leaving. Well, is that because he doesn't like them or love them? And the response to that from this text is absolutely not. Because when I read 24, I say, I hear this, Father, I desire that they also, whom you gave me, may be with me. If you have a friend that you can never get in contact with, talk to, who never has time to spend time with you, I hate to break it to you, but they're not really your friend. They're a pretend friend, they're an acquaintance, they're a phony friend or a fake friend, but if they don't want to be with you, they don't really care about you. Now, I know there are extenuating circumstances. Somebody's going to go home today and say, hey, listen, I know we tried to get together last week. I'm so sorry. Point being is that if, if the general tension is I can never spend time with you, then I have news for you. They don't want to spend time with you. 
They're not really your friend. And so when I read a passage like this, and I hear Jesus crying out to the fire, Father, that they may be with me, I realize again the firm, solid ground of divine relationship. Think about it. He wants to be with us. He wants to be present in our lives. He doesn't want there to be a permanent distance between us. He wants us, if you will, to come to be with him at his home. You remember years ago for some of us when we were dating that special someone, boy or girl? And eventually he got to the place where I'd like you to come home and meet my family, which is really frightening for some of us because of where we've come from. But there is also this sense in which I want you to know where I come from. I want you to know about my identity. I want you to see the home that birthed me. I want you to see and know my family. And there is this sense that this verse carries with it, conveys with it the idea that this future body of believers, this offspring of the disciples' ministry, that Jesus prays that they would be with him in the future. We praise and we serve the God who was and is and is to come. The omniscient, the all-knowing God, the omnipotent God, the omnipresent God who is everywhere. And so to delight in this truth that his mercy is so great that having cleaned us and sanctified us at the foot of the cross, he brings us to himself and he takes us home. There's good news in that. There is an eternity to enjoy the altogether lovely one. There is an eternity to enjoy the altogether lovely one. In verse 25, it begins with this triumphant conclusion. I have known you. The desire of the Messiah right before the cross is to make the Father known to the church. And so the Lamb moves towards the altar and he will not crawl off of it. The battle is still ahead, but he goes forth as conqueror. And even though the whole world might say that he was wrong, he knew himself to be absolutely right. And there is no sense in this prayer that he's clouded in any way, that he's confused, that he's fearful in some way. He's just dominating the circumstance. He's been directing the entire drama since eternity past. Now, if you stop and gain a little altitude and think again about the chronology of the story of the gospel that's given to us here in John's gospel, you realize that at this point in the ministry of Jesus Christ, from a purely physical or numerical perspective, Jesus has not really been that effective. And I don't, I don't say that in kind of a critical way, but think about it in terms of three years of supernatural ministry. It's been rejected by the city of Jerusalem, the leadership of the nation. He's, he's soon going to be arrested in the garden. There's going to be a kangaroo court trial in the middle of the night. He's going to be cruelly scourged and beaten, skin torn apart, die on a, cru on a cross crucified between heaven and earth. You, you would say to that point, how effective has his ministry 
really been physically speaking, visibly speaking. He's poured three years into the life of 12 individuals. One has sold him out and is now gone. These 11 are going to be scattered, are going to run away, and are going to be terrified by the unfolding events. He's always been able to get himself out of any dangerous situation. Now he's staying in the dangerous situation. So by worldly standards, Christ at this point does not appear successful. He's huddled with a small band of unimpressive men. And yet to realize that actually as he cries out to the Father, that he's on the cusp of the greatest victory our world has ever seen. That the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. It will take the cross of Jesus Christ to actuate start off to become the catalyst for the church. The prayer concludes with the great secret of Christian living, Jesus and his love indwelling the believer. The disciples are just about to see how much he really loves them. They're just about to, to know the full scope of his affections for them. He's going to push them to the side take their place, pay for their sin. And it's at that point they realize, oh, this kind of love. How great the Father's love for us. How vast and deep and broad and expansive his love is. And brothers and sisters, it's that message, it's that truth, it's that gospel, it's that bedrock that makes the church of Jesus Christ unique from every other ism on the planet. It is this forever presence. Though the disciples were underperforming and flailing, they would not always be that way. And so it is for us. Well, let's land on something solid and tangible in conclusion. I wrote down two things the church must do. What do we do in light of a prayer? We almost feel embarrassed that we've overheard Jesus praying for us. It's so intimate between father and son. So, so what's it do for us as we prepare to make our way out into the mission field we call life? First of all, this. We must continually refuse to be angered by and divided from one another. And that's not just some tacky pastor saying that. That's the theology that comes to us from John 17. The idea that we, the church of Jesus Christ, would be divided by preferences and not united at the cross over the biggest and grandest and greatest thing, rescue from eternal condemnation, is so bizarre. Unity for us is not some dreamy, wishy, hopey, kumbaya moment. It's trench warfare. It's muddy foot by foot. It's so strange, but think about it. We have to fight for peace. It's not our normal um, way of living. We, we fight for peace. Our souls depend on us killing sin or else sin will be killing us. We are naturally pugilistic. We are naturally scrappy. We are naturally prone to conflict. 
And so to realize that here's the call of God upon our lives to come together. To love one another more than we love ourselves. To know him as the great peacemaker is to know ultimately common ground. The idea that the family of God is made up of imperfect and odd folks is deliciously biblical. So where's home base for us? Home base, the starting point, the North Star for us is found in Christ alone. It's found in Christ alone. We must continually, brothers and sisters, refuse to be angered by and divided from one another. We become a marquee, we become a billboard to the glory of the gospel. And if we can't get along, then why in the world would the world ever determine that maybe they have answers that was never contemplated? Secondly and finally, we must seek reinforcement from God and not the world. We must seek reinforcement from God and not the world. There is an enmity, there is an ongoing conflict between the world system, the cosmos, and God. And prayer becomes the link to eternity. Eternity cannot be explained by this present world system. When heaven is our hope, the fear of death begins to fade. The fear of failure begins to fade. When we live by dying to self, we don't really fear dying. And that's part of what comes forth, I think, beautifully from Jesus Christ's high priestly prayer. The famous Scottish reformer John Knox had this chapter, John 17, read to him every day during his final illness and his final moments. It's truth like this, it's a prayer like this that anchors our soul. McShen used to, Robert Mary McShen used to say, if we could only hear Jesus praying for us in the next room, what courage we would have. And we get a chance, we get the privilege of hearing Christ praying for us here in John 17. We'll need help from God, help that the world cannot supply, strength that the world cannot supply. The world can supply therapy. God gives to us a theology that is deep and rich and thought-provoking. I've shared this story with a few folks before, but it's the winter of 1985. I, uh, I had been at Bible school for several months. I was at Bible school in a place called Heartland, New Brunswick, which is right across the border from Holton, Maine. And I'd been there for a few months, and I'd gotten hugely, hugely discouraged. Um, my family back home in ministry was struggling. I'm going to be real square with you. I'm 18 years old, and my hair is beginning to fall out. And I'm beginning to wonder if I've ever, I'll ever find a godly wife. It's this kind of thinking that's going into my mind. I'm 18 years old, okay? So it's not brilliant stuff always. I, uh, I started walking one night on a dirt road, and I thought I was going to walk or maybe hitchhike home back to Nova Scotia. I'm in northern, Ma I'm in northern New Brunswick. It's very cold. Um, by the grace of God, I didn't get too far, and I realized that this was not wise and potentially dangerous. And so I made my way back to the Bible college and uh, cried myself to sleep. The next day, three of the upperclassmen came to see me. They said, Scott, we want to talk to you. 
come with us. They took me into the, the first floor. I didn't know at one point if they were going to beat me up or what actually was going to go on. But they began to pray for me. Pour out their hearts for me. And it was that prayer that kept me at Bible school because, frankly, I needed more than four months' education. The reality is, is that hearing them pray made a world of difference in my heart. Brothers and sisters, we hear Jesus pray for us here. He prays that we would be like him. He prays that one day we would be with him. And it makes all the difference in the world. The challenge for us in living in a broken world with parts that are still missing from us is to hear the king pray for us, to know of his affections for us. I hope that today, as you have leafed through portions of John 17 with me, that you can hear the voice of our Savior calling out on your behalf. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your kindnesses. Thank you for all that you've done. Father, we want to be not merely a visible representation of you. We want to be a spiritual representation of you. We want to display your glory and your majesty. We're, we're pilgrims on the way. We live between what is and what shall be. Father, we do ask that you would strengthen our hearts. I'm confident, Lord, there are brothers and sisters here this morning struggling, wondering, watching, waiting for a word from you. And I pray that you would supply that word today through your word to us. Father, I pray that you would do the special and secret work deep down in us. Lord, that we'd find fresh delight in hearing the prayer of our Savior, Jesus Christ, for us. Father, I pray that you would be for us the gentle servant that you have promised to be. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.